0: Romumu.org for more information about the other JCast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JCastNetwork.org. This morning, Strat, the morning This morning begins the last third of the Book of Exodus. It feels like we just entered the Book of Exodus, and now we're already on the way out. The Book of Exodus, the Book of Shemot, is 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 limbed. It is opened by. Slavery Enclosed by Mishkan, by Tabernacle, Sanctuary. Thematically, it's very powerful to imagine that the book of Exodus, which begins with the Jewish people, the Israelites having been brought down to Egypt or coming down to Egypt of their own free will, now find themselves enslaved for 210, 400 years, some amount of time they're in slavery. And the book begins without names, even though it's a book of names. The book of Names begins anonymously as if to highlight the anonymity of the slaves, to some degree, the loss of their own identity, the loss of who they were. And then it'll make its way, and following along, we'll find the, the, the Israelite people becoming a free people. And to some degree, they, of course, the ultimate moment of their freedom, what philosopher Isaiah Berlin said, not the freedom from, but the freedom to, they become a people with a mission. They have freedom to become who they are meant to be. They, that happens at Mount Sinai. It's a big moment for them. It's a big epiphany. It's fire and brimstone. It's all that. It's Charlton Heston. It's big. They get these two tablets, and they bring them down. And then the Torah pivots after they've received the, the marching orders, the mission. The Torah pivots to the details of the law in last week's Parsha and Parshat Mishpatim. And then all of a sudden, willy-nilly, out of nowhere, we have God inviting the Jewish people, the Israelites... To build a, a tabernacle, a sanctuary in the desert, a mobile, uh, a mobile mikdash, a mobile uh, logon station for the divine. So it's, it's absolutely unclear how this thematically connects to the book of Exodus. And of course, it's important to know that because the next book of the five books of Moshe will be completely involved with Leviticus, be completely involved with the Mishkan, and then we'll pick up the story again in Ba'midbar. So the latter third of the book of Exodus, and then the entirety of the book of, of the third book, Leviticus, is about this tabernacle, which we had no inkling was coming along. If you had been reading along, you'd say, "Okay, I get it now. We, we're at Mount Sinai. We're done. Now we're going to enter into the conversation about the desert and being in the desert." It's very odd. So, so what do you think? So here's the Mishkan we talked about last night. The, the prominent opinion of Ramban, the great uh, Spanish philosopher and mystic who says that the Mishkan is essentially a portable Mount Sinai. Portable Mount Sinai. Here we were, we, we didn't know it was coming, but we needed it. We didn't know we needed it, but we needed it. God knows we need it. God knows we need a portable Mount Sinai. We can't stay at Sinai forever, and in fact, lest you think that that's okay, we're told you need Sinai forever. And since you can't go to Sinai, Sinai will come to you, and it will be in the form of these small mobile units that will set up shop first in the land of Israel, and eventually in this sanctuary and other sanctuaries. Like these places are miniature Sinai's, places where we recharge and, rege- and reconnect with an original mission, original why, why we're here, what we're doing, this place. There's another opinion that says that it has nothing to do with Sinai. You see, the golden calf story, though it comes later in the Torah, is actually chronologically right at this moment, but it's not written that way. And so you might not have noticed it, of course, because it's not there, but there's a golden calf moment, and then the mishkan, the tabernacle comes as a tikkun, as a fixing of that moment. So those are the two main opinions amongst the rabbis. But the construction, without a doubt, whether, whether we imagine it as a portable Sinai, or as, if we imagine it as a fixing of a mistake that we don't seem to make, at least in the flow of the text at this moment... There's a third option, which is that, and this doesn't really tell us why it comes here, but maybe it does. It's so clear from a a reading of the text that the Mishkan is a mini-world. It's a microcosm. It's a creation story again. It's another world being created, but this time not by God, but by human beings. It's very clear from a close reading of the tabernacle story both in language and in form in many different ways that essentially we have here a repetition of what happened in the first chapter of the book of Genesis where God creates heaven and earth and at this moment we are being told to create a world so I was thinking to myself why now right why here after we receive Torah at Sinai if this is not a portable Sinai and it's not a fixing of some mistake, some idolatry but rather a creative moment saying build a world Isn't that the most natural understanding of what the religious path is? Is to partner with God in creating God's world or God's envisioned world? Isn't this Mishkan, this tabernacle, nothing less than our own lives and the life around us and everyone? It's not just let's bring Sinai to the people, but let's bring and build a world together. As if God is saying, if you didn't understand the revelation at Sinai, it wasn't so you become a really good Jew. That's great. Like, you'll keep all the commandments and be really punctilious. And it wasn't like the next week's portion, which is, right, make sure that in your interpersonal relationships, that's also great. That's vital. I mean, we fall short of that all the time. But let me end the book of liberation with the greatest liberation story, which isn't the, the freedom to be, right, covenanted by God, but the freedom to be Godlike and to build the world. It's not just to be obedient, but to be a partner. It's not just to listen, but to do. It's not just Naseh and it's like Naseh meaning create the world. Be that part of who you are. And so if we read it that way, then every piece of the Mishkan in some level is telling us something about the world that we create. And that's, of course, the way Philo and every other uh, great commentator look at the allegories of, the, of all of the vessels and all of the pieces of the Mishkan. It was Each piece was connected to first creation, and then to my heart let's take for example chapter 26 verse 1 which we're going to read in a moment on page 491 et ha mishkan and now the tabernacle with the great definite article the tabernacle that ha mishkan the mishkan only place in the entire tabernacle writing where this phrase ha mishkan the tabernacle is if moses in this moment is being told now that great tabernacle, the one, not the one you're about to create, but the great tabernacle, the tabernacle, the world, the sanctuary, the, ha, he'ayadi'ah. That's the way the rabbis read it. He'ayadi'ah, lamar lecha, haolam, haolam, the, the world, the tabernacle. Now that tabernacle, that sanctuary, that place of where God's presence resides, the word taaseh, maaseh again, make it, make it, be a creator in it. Eser Yiriot. Ten Yiriot. Ten, what are Yiriot? What does it say in the JPS? Accurate translation? What does it say? What are Yiriot? Strips of cloth. What's a, does anybody know what a Yiriah is? A, it's like a, um, a curtain, a vilon, like something like that, that covers, right? So what are the purpose of these ten yeriot? What are they going to serve in the tabernacle? Anybody know? What form will it, will it take in the tabernacle? These curtains anybody what formed what's the purpose of these 10 curtains in the tabernacle to cover to enclose the entirety of the of the sanctuary of the entire right the entire this is what keeps out this is the boundary this is where in and out happens is through these curtains these curtains will hang over the beams right and will serve to as a delineation between inside and outside right they are Yiriot now of course in, if you're reading the Bible or hearing the Bible, you hear the word Yiri'ah, you think, if you're reading it intertextually or hearing other resonance, you hear Yiri'ot are the way that the psalmist describes the skies. The skies are God's curtains. The skies are God's curtain, And these ten Yiri'ot, say the rabbis in the Midrash, in a number of places, they say, these Eser Yiri'ot are Keneged Asarah dibrot These ten curtains are paralleling the ten utterances at Sinai and the ten—I'm sorry—ten utterances in creation of the world and the ten spoken words at Sinai. These ten curtains are allegorically or symbolically representing both revelation and creation. These ten curtains are the ten skies, as it were. The division between heaven and earth—that which divides the dividers, the ten dividers. And here's something powerful that is about those 10 curtains that is, uh, for me, let's think about this together, and then we'll, I'll call you up for something, okay? At the end of this verse, they're made of sheish mashzar, right? They're made of woven, I guess, silk, or what is sheish mashzar? It's kind of, it's, mm? what does JPS say? Linen, right, meshy, right? So, I'm sorry, it is finely twisted. It's twisted linen, not so twisted linen. So, it's also blue and crimson. It's tolad shani. These are the yarns that are blue, purple, and crimson yarns. And then, They are made with kruvim. So, these ten fabrics are going to be the the division between the inside and the outside of the holy and the holy of holies, the kodesh and the kodesh kodeshim, not the external. That one will have much bigger drapes. But these 10 are the inside holy area and the holy of the holies. And it's made of these different yarns. And then what is to be woven into these beautiful tapestries, these beautiful curtains? The kruvim, the same cherubs that are above the, the aron, above the golden ark that holds the tablets, holds these two cherubic Figures that face one another. And so they have to be woven into the fabric. So if we were going to be allegorical about that and then like ask the to give us good advice this morning, what would be the good advice embedded, embroidered in this, in these curtains? So where do the cherubs live? And And then we're going to come around. Where do the cherubs live? In the inside of the inside of the inside. Who gets to see the cherubs? High priests. Who else? No one. The same cherubs that are on the inside of the inside of the inside are now also found on the place where you can see them. If you're a Kohen, you're not your highest priest in the world, you're still, you're walking around. The sanctuary is held together by these beautiful skies and the sky, it's like, you know, uh, the cherubs are in the sky with diamonds. You know, it's like there are these cherubs in this sky that you can see, Rabbi Mira. So, in the allegory of Yiriot, meaning curtains as heavens, right, that's our heaven. And we are permitted, everyone is permitted to come close, even if we can't get into the inside. The inside, we all have access, or that the mystery of the Kruvim is accessible to all. And the mystery of the Kruvim is about connection, intimacy, revelation, right, beautiful. So, it's there on on the Yiriot, beautiful. Anyone else? Yeah, Livia. It's a temptation for paganism. Certainly, a temptation for what we would call paganism, but or maybe the other way around. There's something beautiful in uh, yeah. right because even the, the the Gemara Sanhedrin says that the, the the Talmud says that they were they were interwoven in a sexual embrace, and that that became embarrassing later on when people saw that. But for us, it was a sodakrovim that God's creation is erotic at its nature. There's something erotic about the creation story, the creation that the heart of creation is the coupling that happens beautiful okay so it could be could be a pagan moment well it could be certain parts of judaism tried to deny parts of that neil yeah Right, but why on why is it on the curtains? God speaks us between the ter- cherubs. God is found in relationship. God is found in that. But why on the yiriot? Why on the curtains? I understand above the Ark of the Covenant, but why on the curtains? That's where we're going here. So that's beautiful. Thank you for that. It's lifting it up, Nishama. So there is a, a kind of teaching from Nishama about non-duality, that we are not to bifurcate between... If each of us represents a microcosm, each of us is a mini-mishkan. So this reminder on the curtains is a reminder to all of us that we are all... Erotic beings, physical beings—that that isn't in some way a denial, right? That we shouldn't in, be in a religious posture that sees that as not included in the holy. That's also—we should not. We should not make the mistake of thinking that it is not included. Maybe say it more positively. We should remember that it is a part of the holy. Okay, great. <laughs> Rabbi Jill. So Rabbi Jill is teaching that in both in, in our tradition and also in the Near East, we find that the cherubs are these angelic or these these beings. Both are uh, expressing and noting this is sacred space, and also guarding it. And there's an important is teaching about how we hold sacred space, whether you know how we how sacred space is guarded and both and also marked. It's important to mark sacred space and also to make sure that it's treated with a certain uh, certain quality. I, I know I saw hands on this side, but we haven't done. It's like we need weighted hands, okay, Rachel. So did did everybody hear? So Rachel was saying that she noted the language. Of course, kruvim appear other places in the Torah. There are kruvim who very much act in exactly the same way that Rabbi Jill said in the Garden of Eden story. The kruvim, the cherubs guard the Garden of Eden. So that's one. And you also, so that kind of lends weight to that interpretation. And then you also said very beautifully, I think, that even though the spelling of the word kruv, cherub, is is with a kaf, it has, a, a, it has an oral or phonetic, it's a homonym with, uh, with karov, right? with it, it's, it's, um, which means to come close. And so there's a danger, of course, that kind of the crew are guarding those who come close inappropriately. Right? You know, the, the one who comes close, Zerah, Karov, Yumat, that we have to be very careful about who is allowed into the sacred sanctuary and who isn't whether prepared or not, for whatever reason, for their own sake, for our sake, whatever it might be. Okay, beautiful. Steve, both sides. Okay, just for clarification. So I was going in a completely different direction, and I love all of these. Um, but I, w- I was going in two other directions, but I'm going to call, you can, You know, if any of these things speak to you where you are, because we're asking ourselves as we're learning to rock, is this me? Is this where I am right now in my life? Is this where we are as a community? Does this speak to me? Is it, is it really? I was going in a different direction. I was going in this direction, which is... There's something very powerful to read about this teaching as we approach Purim, which is a holiday of authenticity, or a holiday of the question around authenticity, the question around masks and unmasking, and when we wear a mask and when we don't, and the relation between the inside and the outside. Are we authentic um, is, is such a profoundly confusing question, because what is authenticity? And it's not honesty, it's certainly not sincerity, But Lionel Trilling in his great book uh, on authenticity raises the, the, the question of can one be authentic while one is also hiding? Of course, this is the story, of course, of Joseph. The story of Joseph is a story of authenticity, questions of assimilation, questions of who am I really, when do I expose who I really am, when do I hold it back, when do I say something that needs to be said and when don't I, and is that being inauthentic? And it's a very powerful meditation as we... Enter into Purim, which is, of course, a time to bring out the selves that don't normally come out, let's say, where cover allows things that might not normally come to the fore to come to the fore. I think I was very taken by the notion that that the sky, as it were, of the Mishkan has in it something that is only seen by one person but that all can access it, as if to say that in the most Profound public way that we are are we mirroring out externally what we are doing on the inside or where the inside is is there a gap a major gap between who we are in our holy of holies and who we are when those around us can look at us and That only only you only me. We are the ones who know that Right, it's not up for anyone else to decide where that how big a gap there can be because there always will be a gap It's impossible to live our lives with right, the fullness of the inside on the outside, with that confusion, there must be some gap. But if the gap is too wide, we wind up feeling like hypocrites. If the gap is too wide, we feel like we're in a lie. If the gap is too wide, we feel like we are closed down and we haven't shown who we truly are. And that that might be a goal to aspire towards, is to try to show what's on the inside as frequently as possible in as safe a way as possible. But knowing that it's, there's a boundary. That was one direction. And I know that the rule is that I'm supposed to just do one idea. But here's a second idea. And it's, you know, hold that one, hold the ones that Rabbi Jill and Rachel and everyone, hold all of those. And now a last idea, which is so, it's been, I've been thinking about this all week since Wednesday and the events that happened in Parkland in Florida. And if I was going to give a sermon this morning, and this is not, we don't give sermons on Shabbat morning so much, we're just talking in Torah together. And hopefully people are not taking the time to sleep. They're really engaging and sitting and listening. The other Torah here is the word kruv and the way that it becomes cherubs become infants or babies is that the word, at least according to the sages, is "kiravia." That there's an Aramaic equivalent between kruv and like a baby. Kiruvya, kiravya. And that there is an opinion that, that the cherubs are, have the faces of infants. The two babies facing each other. Is it to say that the doorway to the Holy of Holies has children embroidered in it? And that a society, a community, a country will only be as holy as how it treats its children. Whether it spends more money on the military or more money on feeding and clothing its children. That will be the litmus test of your holy will be Kiravia, the Kruvim, who are in the face of innocence. So mark your doors with innocence. Let your innocence be in that place. And let that be the way that you walk in and walk out of the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kodeshim. So coming in for landing, we have all of those. And so I'd like to invite you, if you feel called this morning, to take a moment now to, to listen to anything that was said by me or by others in this community as a guiding post for you in your life right now, wherever you are, or for someone else in your life. And if you then feel called to stand with Torah in the next 30 seconds, um, we'll call you up, and you can stand for a blessing of Torah related to the gyrio, to the curtains around the Holy and the Holy of Holies.